0: at least to start. We won't get very far this week in chapter 63. Most of it will come next week. My plan will be to finish 63 next week. But we haven't been in Isaiah since the Sunday before Thanksgiving, so it's been a good little while. This is a good time to do some review and it'll work out well uh, based upon what I got for Christmas. So what I got for Christmas from my son John was one larger book. Uh, which I had a pretty good idea I was going to get that particular book. And then he threw in kind of a a small little book as well. And that small little book was entitled How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets. It's not big, it's just this thin little book. And so our Christmas was just this past Tuesday. And uh, on Tuesday I kind of opened the little book and started reading a little bit here and there. We've been in Isaiah. And I found it positively fascinating the things he was saying. And one of the things I was really excited about is I don't think I've botched Isaiah yet. Because uh, when you have somebody like Peter Gentry, who's a professor of Old Testament theology, and, and he's a Ph.D. from Southern Seminary, when he writes a book on how to read and understand the biblical prophets, uh, he reads and understands in a, in a way, a deeper level than I'm able to. And yet this book is very accessible and very interesting. And a lot of what he was bringing out, he may use a little bit different words or phraseology, but it was very similar to some of the things we've discovered going through Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. Now he gives seven principles for understanding biblical prophets. I'm only about halfway through the book, because, partly because I'm limited on time, and what I have to read mostly is to get ready for a Sunday service. But if I have a really good week, I may be able to finish it this week. Ideally, I'd love to be able to just teach you those seven principles. I suppose, really, if I were going with ideally, I would just sit everybody around and read you the book, but, but I wouldn't have high hopes that everybody would stay awake, or maybe even be as interested. But one of his principles, number three out of the seven principles, is this, and he talks about the function of repetition in Hebrew literature. And this was particularly good and particularly interesting. I, in some sense, I don't know that I articulated, but I knew it was true because I know we've been going through Isaiah, and we keep. In fact, we've talked about, and I'll show you on the screen in a little bit, some of the themes we've seen repeated over and over and over. But he put it in such a way that I thought brought even better clarity, and it kind of it kind of energized me again to finishing Isaiah. Uh, we've had such a long break, five weeks or so, maybe even six weeks since we've been in Isaiah, and part of me thinks, well, I just want to be writ- I'd like to start the next book, I'd like to start Ephesians, but now I'm like, I kind of want to start Isaiah all over again, uh, which I won't do, but it's been really interesting reading the little bits of this book. So I'm going to show you a couple paragraphs of what he says about the function of repetition in Hebrew literature. Peter Gentry writes, We all know that Hebrew writers, including the prophets, were very repetitive. In fact, repetition is at the heart of Hebrew discourse. The normal pattern in Hebrew literature is to consider topics in recursive manner. Recursive manner is, in other words, a progressively repetitive manner. And I really like that he used the word progressively repetitive. Repetitive. So it's not just repeating for no good reason or to fill up space. He's repeating, but he's progressing. Progressing. He's adding to. He's enhancing what came before. So it's progressive repetition. This approach is boring, frustrating, and monotonous to those who do not know and understand that this approach was a purposeful way of communicating the content. If you've ever read the prophets, maybe that was part of your frustration. It seems like he repeats himself a lot. It seems like the same story over and over and over again. But it's not exactly the same story. It's a progressive repetition. He goes on to write, Normally... A Hebrew writer would begin a discourse on a particular topic, develop it from a particular angle or perspective, and end by closing down that conversation. Then he would begin another conversation, taking up the same topic again from a different angle or point of view and considering it from a different perspective. And then he asked the question, do you recall the illustration we considered earlier about stereo sound? And of course you don't because that was in the first two chapters, and you haven't read those. But he then goes on to kind of explain it again. He writes, When two conversations or discourses on the same topic are heard or read in succession, they are meant to function like the left and right speakers of a stereo system. Now here's the key question. Do both speakers of the stereo system provide the same music, or does each give different music? The answer is both. The music is different and the same. Now, there are some groups that are particularly like that. Uh, the group that comes to my mind, and since we've played them here, I suppose it's okay to say that. But Queen, some of their music definitely has a separation of channels. What's coming out of one speaker is very complementary, and in some ways it's the same as what's coming out of the other channel. But it's not entirely the same. They complement one another. They enhance one another. They give a fuller picture than if you just had mono sound. He then finishes. Such an approach is completely opposite to scientific writing in our Western culture, which is based on our Greek and Roman heritage. In our culture, a writer begins at a certain point A, and he moves slowly in a direct line using arguments, evidence, and logic, to point B. That's the way Western people think. We started a certain point, we developed that point, now we transition to point B. Now it expects you to remember point A, but it's not going to rehearse it for you. And each point is kind of separate and less connected. Hebrew writers don't write like that. Hebrew writers use a progressive repetition. That is true in Isaiah. It's true of all of Scripture. And you need go no further, like if you want to say, if I, if I were to give you a good example of that, I can take you all the way back to Genesis at the very beginning with the creation account. Because in Genesis chapter 1, and it actually the first three verses of chapter 2 belong in chapter 1, uh, it's kind of like I, the guy that divided up the Bible into chapters and verses did, a, did us a great service. Uh, we would spend a lot of time just making sure we're all at the same place otherwise. But if he started in Genesis, he didn't get off. He, it was kind of a rough start because the seventh day of creation is in chapter 2, those first three verses. Then it ends at verse 3. And then in chapter 2, you've got what sounds like a almost a different creation. And what the author's contending is it's two 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 accounts out of two different speakers. And it brings a better picture, a more complete picture. It's enhancing our understanding of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God created man. Male and female, he created them. Boom, it's done. And then in Genesis chapter 2, you find out that God created Adam first out of the dust. And Adam was naming the animals, and he realized that there was no... no, Person that answered back to him uh, that was like him, and so God had a deep sleep fall on Adam and He created Eve out of His sight. That's c- what just happened there. It's not that the author Moses somehow forgot what he just written, but now he's layering back because that's what Hebrew writers do, and he's giving us a he's developing a picture of creation. Hebrew writers do that. It's a beautiful thing. So let's take that to what we've learned in Isaiah. Repetition has uh, previously been found in Isaiah. I've identified five things. This is very complementary to what uh, Peter Gentry writes in his own book. He uses different words and phraseology. Uh, He may lump a few things together, and I may separate a few things where he lumps them together or vice versa. But basically, the five themes I've developed in chapter 40 to 66 would be these. There's the theme of sin. Uh, Peter Gentry would call it breaking the covenant. There's a the theme of judgment. There's a theme of salvation slash grace. There's a theme of encouragement for the, for the righteous remnant, for those that are believing in spite, of, in spite of the judgment, in spite of the sin, in spite of Israel's failure to keep God's law or even desire it, in spite of the idolatry, the proneness to wander, yet there's this terrific encouragement that salvation and grace will be brought. And ultimately, there will be this complete reversal, this complete renewal, all things made new. Jerusalem will not be a city forsaken. It will be a city that becomes the light of the world. So there's finally that theme of renewal and reversal. Well, let's identify these themes in Isaiah. You can follow along. This is where we're not going to Actually, start off in chapter 63. We're going to go back to chapter 58. Let's develop a look at just a few verses regarding this theme of sin because we find out that Israel's problem, Jerusalem's problem, is my problem. Uh, Israel's problem is your problem. We have a heart problem, we have a sin problem. So in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 and 2, it reads like this Isaiah 58 cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. It's a religious people. It's not an irreligious people. It's not a people that doesn't want to don't want to gather together on the Sabbath day for them. They're gathering on the Sabbath day. And they're saying, we need a word from the Lord. But they have no interest in obedience. They have no interest in faith, in in trust, in confidence in what the Lord has said. They've got a sin problem. And so in chapter 59, we find out they cannot remedy this problem. Chapter 59, verse 1. The problem isn't the Lord's, it's theirs. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Or is it dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness and on and on it goes. The problem isn't on the Lord's side. The problem is on our side. We've got a sin problem, and, and we can't solve the sin problem. And so when we offer up our prayers to God and our desires before God, the fact that we may not get the answer we want isn't because God isn't powerful to save and deliver. The problem is, what about the sin problem? How can you pretend like everything is okay when your hands are stained with blood? When the things that come out of your mouth are selfish and self-centered and and derived from my own pride, my own self-righteousness, my own self-interest. I've got all those problems. So then, what's kind of remarkable, this is somewhat of a rare occasion in Isaiah, Israel or Judah, Jerusalem, confesses their sin in verses 9 and 10. Now, usually they deny their sin. Usually they blame it on God. Uh, The reason why life isn't better is because somehow God has forgotten us. God is not living up to all that he said he would do. But no, in this case, in verses 9 and 10, they recognize it's their problem. Verse 9, 59, verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. They recognize they've got a problem. They're, they're stumbling in the dark. They have no solution to the problem. So what we find out next, if we transition from this this theme of sin is that the Lord is going to counter with his solution. They can't solve the problem. They're not going to change on their own. It doesn't make any difference how explicitly God reveals his commandments to them. It doesn't make any difference how many he gives them, how many statutes, how many ordinances. It doesn't make any difference how many prophets, how many kings, how many priests. God can do all of those things. It's not going to change what's on the inside. And so the Lord proposes a solution, or he announces a solution. This is in chapter 59. The second part of verse 15 should be divided. So chapter 59, the second part of verse 15 reads this. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then... His own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so that they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. Now, according to those verses, when the Lord intercedes on Israel's behalf, and in particular, much of Isaiah is kind of focused on Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is uh, the symbol or the emblem for all of Israel, but especially Jerusalem. So when the Lord intercedes for Jerusalem, what does it result in? According to those verses. What do they get? What do they find? What do they experience? Judgment and salvation. The Lord's own arm brought him salvation. And he put on garments of vengeance. So when the Lord intercedes, when the Lord interjects himself into this situation, we have both judgment and salvation when the Lord intercedes and does for Jerusalem, does for Israel, what they cannot do for themselves. So, what does the Lord's salvation look like? Let's start with that. What does does salvation look like when the Lord intercedes? You've got Jerusalem that has this terrible sin problem, rotten from the inside. What difference does it make when the Lord intercedes? Well, what you're going to find is that question is answered in chapter 60, it's answered in 61, and it's answered in 62. Those are the chapters we finished with back in uh, November, probably pushing back into October a little bit. So let's look at those. We won't look at the entire chapter. We'll just look at select verses. So what does salvation look like? Here's what it looks like. And you want to look for three things. You want to look for what is the Lord doing? You want to look for what's happening in Jerusalem. And you also want to look for what difference does it make to the rest of the world? What difference does it make to Gentiles? What is the Lord doing? What difference does it make in Jerusalem? And what difference is it making to everybody else out there? So chapter 60, it starts like this. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now we identified the you is Jerusalem. It's the Jews. It's Israel. Arise, shine, for Israel's light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon Jerusalem. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon Jerusalem. His glory will be seen upon Jerusalem. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What is the Lord doing? His light shines on Jerusalem, on his people. What difference does it make to the Gentiles? They come to the light. They see God's salvation and grace brought to Israel, and they're attracted to that. Skip down to verse 21. Verse 21, same chapter, chapter 60. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, and here's the reason, that I might be glorified that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Why does God do all that he does in salvation and judgment, that he might be glorified? God glorifies himself in salvation. God glorifies himself in judgment. Now, that's actually the, the last message I preached out of Isaiah the week before Thanksgiving, we looked at examples. God's name was glorified among all the nations of the earth in Moses' day by what happened to Pharaoh in Egypt. All the surrounding nations heard about it. In fact, 40 years after the fact, when Israel finally started going into the promised land and Joshua sent spies into Jericho, Rahab said, oh, we know about your God. That was 40 years ago. We know about your, we know what he's done. He's a God who exercises judgment and makes his name known. But he's also a God of salvation who delivered his people out of slavery. Well, how is all this accomplished? The answer is in chapter 61. Chapter 61, verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound And then if you skip down to the last part of verse 11, the last part of verse 11 says, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to shout, to sprout up before all the nations. The Lord is going to do a work, a mighty work of salvation among his own people, and the nations are going to take notice. Now that me in chapter 61, we know that's Messiah. We know that's the servant of the Lord. We know that's Jesus, and we know that because Jesus went into uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He opened the scripture to Isaiah chapter 61. He read that, and he said, that's talking about me. So when Isaiah says, how is is all this wonderful stuff going to be accomplished? It's going to be accomplished because God works salvation for himself. He does it by becoming a man coming into our earth, and he does that. He fulfills that. He doesn't rely on a king or a judge or a prophet. He doesn't rely on some group of people to finally get it right so that all the nations will know just how great God is. He does it himself, Isaiah chapter 61. Then you've got Isaiah chapter 62, uh, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. Now, that's the same servant talking. That's that's Messiah. That's Jesus talking. Jesus is saying, the Son of God is saying, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. That's what was promised in chapter 60 and verse 1. Arise, shine. Your light's going to shine. And the Lord Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be silent until it happens. Because he worked for it. He earned it. He deserves it. He deserves his reward. And so he says, I'm not going to be silent until that happens. Verse 2, the nations shall see your righteousness. And all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You, Jerusalem, shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. Skip down to verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the Gentiles, the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the Gentiles. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they, Jerusalem, Israel, shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. What a beautiful picture of the Lord's purposes of redemption for Jerusalem, for Israel, for the nations of the earth. And then what we ended with, that last Sunday we were in Isaiah, were uh, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 62. So, verses 6 and 7 read like this. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen. Now, I take it that those watchmen are especially the prophets. So, the Lord says, I've set up prophets as watchmen for my people Israel, for Jerusalem. I've set up watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. And then it... It expands it, I think, by saying, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him, that's the Lord, no rest until he, the Lord, establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So in Isaiah chapter 62, verses 6 and 7, it was that powerful thought that I'd never considered in my entire life until I read it, what, five weeks ago. The idea is this, the prophets are looking for the Lord to fulfill everything that he's ever promised, because nothing will be left unfulfilled. In fact, it's not just the prophets, it's all those that put the Lord in remembrance. Look for what the Lord is going to do, because nothing is going to fail. It will all be brought to completion. It will all be brought to fulfillment. The Lord's purposes will not fail on any level, and they're looking for that. And they're to remind the Lord of that, which is the amazing part. The Lord says, you can badger me about it. You can remind me of it. Well, Lord, didn't you say you were going to do this? Because the Lord will do it. The Lord's not going to be like, well, I tried. I mean, look at all I did. And, And it just didn't work. You people, oh, if I'd only known. The Lord will never do that. He says, you can bring it up. Every time you pray, you can bring it up. Because it will be brought to fulfillment. Because I know my word, I know my promises, and it depends on me. It depends on me bringing salvation, not on you bringing salvation. So you've got these these watchmen, and they're looking for salvation. They're looking for God's grace. They're looking for Jerusalem to, to experience this wonderful reversal from a city forsaken to a city beloved. They're looking for Jerusalem from being a city where the walls are broken down and in shambles and the people live in poverty and they're oppressed. They're looking for for it all to change and, and Jerusalem is a shining light and the Gentiles are drawn to that light and the people are experiencing the rich blessing of God. But surprisingly, I think, that's not all the watchmen see. The watchmen don't only see salvation, we find out in chapter 63, they see something besides salvation. It doesn't mean salvation doesn't come, but it means there's more to it than that. So, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. The watchman is crying out. This is the guy up on the wall. He's looking for salvation. He's looking for reversal in Jerusalem. He's looking for the blessing of God. And the watchman cries out, well, who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson, crimsoned garments from Bozrah, which is an important city, sometimes a capital city in Edom. This is a, a place, a region, a people. This is a city. Let me start over. I blew it. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments from Bozrah. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. I see somebody coming. It's not exactly what I expect to see. Who is this coming? And the person answers, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. That's who's coming. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Let me go back to Edom for a moment. Edom in the Bible is a country just south of Judah. There's Jerusalem. Uh, all of Israel under David and Solomon, and for that matter, King Saul before that, it was one nation of 12 tribes. But after Solomon, it split up into 10 tribes called Israel to the north, two tribes called Judah to the south. Jerusalem was in Judah. South of Judah was a people group called Edom. Edom is a word that is derived from uh, Esau, it means red. So there's kind of a play on words going on here because. Uh, Who is this coming? He's crimsoned in garments. Uh, He's he's red. He's coming from Edom, red. They're the descendants of Esau. The descendants of Esau are the closest relative to Judah that there is. The closest relative to Israel that there is. Do you remember that Isaac and Rebekah had two sons? And those two sons were twins. There was Jacob and there was Esau. They're twins. The Lord chose Jacob in his grace to make them his own chosen people. Jacob had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. But the closing living relative to Jacob, Israel, the people of God, are the Edomites. And the Edomites and the Israelites had nothing to do with one another. And the Edomites, many on several occasions in Scripture, delighted in the fact that Jerusalem was torn down. And they're mocking the Jews as they go into captivity. And they're celebrating all the misfortune that came upon the Jews. And so in Scripture, there are any number of instances where special judgment is pronounced upon Edom. This Edom, that Edom. Special judgment is pronounced upon them because they delighted in the adversity of the people of God. It's actually a kind of a sidelight. In Scripture, this is my operating theory. This is what I'm going with uh, until I, if I ever think differently. But in the Bible, Babylon is a picture of, of the world against God. So you've got the Tower of Babel. They're aligning themselves against God. All the way back in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, mighty is the fall of Babylon. It's a world that says we need no God. You don't need God to be good. You don't need God to be righteous. You don't need God to define purpose for your life. That's Babylon. It's a world arrayed against God. But Edom in the Bible, Edom represents the nations that despise Israel. Not not directly despising God. They despise the people of God. And so Edom represents nations that despise Jerusalem that despise Judah, that despise Israel. So, let's move from uh, the first question to the second question. Oh, by the way, do we know who this person is? Not explicitly, in chapter 63, the person says, I mean, the watchman says, who is this? And he says, it's me, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. That can only be the Lord. That can only be Messiah, that can only be the servant of the Lord, but he does, it's not explicitly said, but it, within the context, there could be no other. The Lord's working salvation for himself. He's the one who's mighty to save. I've got a quote in your bulletin by Charles Spurgeon. Excellent quote. And it's based on this particular text. So in your bulletin, it reads like this, Charles Spurgeon. Christ is mighty Not merely to put sinners into a savable condition, but mighty absolutely and entirely to save them. This fact I regard as one of the grandest proofs of the divine character of the Bible revelation. The best proof you can ever have of God's being mighty to save, dear hearers, is that he saved you. Ah, my dear hearer, it were a miracle if he should save thy fellow that stands by thy side but it were more of a miracle that he should save thee. You know why it's more of a miracle that he would save you? Because you are the worst sinner you will ever know. And I'm the worst sinner I'll ever know. Because I don't know why, why you do the things you do. I don't know the thoughts in your mind. I don't know the motivations of your heart. But I know enough about mine to know I'm a miserable sinner. It's a miracle of God that he's mighty to save. But he is. He's mighty to save. Second question. The watchman says... Oh, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? He's looking for salvation. Why, are, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the wine press? And the person answers, I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, That's not a very pretty picture. He's not done answering, though. Let me move it over, rearrange things. Let's add to that. Verse 4 adds, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now what you're going to find, we don't have time for it, but if you wanted to, you could go back to Isaiah chapter 34, you've got another similar judgment pronounced against Edom. Both of those judgments make me a little bit uncomfortable. Both of those judgments are awfully graphic that his His garments are splattered with blood because he's taken out vengeance upon Edom. But here's the truth that emerges from Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 63. You cannot separate the salvation of God from the judgment of God. You cannot separate the grace of God from the vengeance of God. You cannot separate the mercy of God from the wrath of God. Lots of people want salvation. But salvation comes at a cost. Wrath was poured out, even at my salvation. It was poured out on Christ on the cross. But wrath was poured out. Those who don't believe in Christ, who He is as a person, and what He accomplished on the cross, they will bear their own wrath. They will bear the wrath of Christ on their own. But you can't separate the two. As much as we might like to in a culture like ours where we're meant to be tolerant and accepting, not just accepting, but affirming of everybody's opinion. The truth is, salvation, the salvation of Christ cannot be separated from the judgment of God. In verse 4, he talks about a day of vengeance and a year of redemption. A day of vengeance a day of vengeance and a year of redemption. If that rings a bell, it should, because that's exactly what Messiah said he was going to accomplish. Remember back in chapter 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. It's a fulfillment of what the servant said he came to do. I'm coming to bring salvation. I'm coming to execute judgment. Then in verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. Does that ring a bell? It should, because that's the second time we've read it from an earlier passage. Remember back in chapter 59, speaking of the Lord, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. So my own arm... The Son brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. Here, righteousness is upheld. Here, wrath is upheld. God, in working salvation, does not compromise righteousness or wrath. He doesn't just say, ah, enough of it. I'm just going to let everybody in. It's not, the other, the other, the old ways aren't working. I don't want to have to be angry at anybody. I don't want to have to execute justice or righteousness or or display my holiness. I'm just going to let everybody into the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't compromise his righteousness. He doesn't compromise his character. He doesn't compromise the call for wrath against sin. So those are very complementary as well. What's emphasized in all of this is the aloneness of the work. Only God brings salvation, works salvation. Only only Christ, only in Him is salvation found. When He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by Me. He works it alone. Only Him. It doesn't mean you can't have religion without Him. But salvation is only found in Him. And judgment is only executed by Him. Ultimately, salvation and judgment both. Because only He is righteous enough to execute perfect salvation and perfect justice at the same time. We would execute vengeance for, for selfish reasons, because of personal grudge, because of, yeah, you had that coming to you. I mean, don't you love it when somebody passes you really fast on the... Is, in fact, I had a person honking at me last, this earlier this week. I don't, I don't think I ever told Sarah and Jonathan this. When we got Anna Tai, and I'm bringing it home, and there was somebody following me, coming down Main Street to go to South Shores. They're honking their horn. I didn't realize they were honking at me at first, but they were honk. I think they just wanted me to move. And then they got mad. They started flashing their lights at me and honking and tailgating. And I'm like, good grief, this guy's out of control. And then the next stoplight, when we finally went in, we eventually came to a stoplight, and he had to stop. And I thought, ha, <laughs> not as big a hurry as you thought you were, but I didn't want to... I didn't want to gloat because I thought, this guy's kind of crazy, he may shoot. (laughs) But those thoughts were crossing my mind. But only, he does all of this alone because he's the only one qualified to do it. If there was anybody else that could have brought salvation or executed perfect justice, Christ never would have had to be born a man. He never would have had to live a servant's life. He never would have had to be treated to the humiliation and shame that he was treated with and die on a cross if it could be done any other way. But he did it all alone. And that's emphasized more than the one word alone. It's emphasized no one was with me. No one to help. No one to uphold. My own arm. He saw there was no man. No one. His own arm. He does it alone. If you participated in your salvation, it's not Christ's salvation. It's not a cooperative effort. It's his work alone. He saves alone, or there's no salvation. So it looks like all this. Why why are we told this story of blood, of vengeance? There's at least two reasons. Number one, because we live in a year of favor. And it's urgent that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We live in a year of favor. Right now, it's not the day of vengeance now. The day of vengeance is when he comes back in power and glory with the armies of heaven. Then the year of favor has ended. But right now, we live in this extended year, this extended period of time where the gospel goes out. And the church is our administrators of that gospel. We are administrators of the light that it should shine, that there's a message to share, that it is to be urgent. I think one of my problems, this is at least my problem, on some level I think it's a Western church problem, is we're kind of comfortable separating salvation from judgment. We're happy with people being saved, but we don't want to talk about judgment. And we don't want to talk about wrath. But if I separate those two, my urgency to share a message, a gospel message, of which I am not to be ashamed, it's intensified by recognizing you can't separate them. And I know in 2022, I will, I will share the gospel with no more people than I did in 2021, unless my mind changes about what God says about a year of redemption and a day of vengeance. Both are true. What are your comments and questions? Jonathan, and it's all done that he would be glorified, whether it's in Pharaoh's hardness or in the mercy to his people Israel. His name is glorified either way. All will glorify God, either in justice or in mercy. Somebody else? By the way, in case I haven't made it clear, you know, talking about sin and salvation... You know, we live in a year of redemption. If you've never called upon the name of the Lord, if you've never said, Christ, be merciful to me, a sinner, and take away my sin, it's a prayer. It comes from the heart. And if you're like, I'm not sure I feel it, then your prayer should be, God, create that desire in me where the thing I want most of all is a relationship with the living God through Christ. There's a song based upon this passage of Scripture based upon Isaiah 34 as well. It's a song entitled The Battle Hymn of the Republic. It was a Civil War song. Um, actually, it's derived from a Civil War song. Uh, and then it became, this song also was associated with the Civil War. So it was written in the 1860s or whenever. There's a version I'm going to play for you now that will sing, two verses. So it's uh, sung by Joan Baez. So she was a hippie back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, and it's kind of amazing to me, she put this on a live album, uh, and in 1963 she invited her the concert goers to sing the song. There's no video projector, there's no lyrics handed out, but presumably pretty much everybody knew the song, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. And so in culture in the 1963, they could sing this song that speaks so much of Christ, wedding together salvation, and judgment in the same song. So let's stand and this will be our benediction. Battle Hymn of the Republic. Words will be on the screen.